Welcome to episode 42 of How We Win. All over the country, people are staying home, staying safe, and doing extraordinary things. We're giving you the tools that you need to make a difference right now. The best antidote to anxiety is action. There are 139 days left until the most important election of our lives. We need your help, and we're going to get through this together. Today, we have an important and challenging chat with the author of Don't Label Me, an incredible conversation for divided times, Irshad Manji. Irshad is also the founder of the Moral Courage College, and we talk about what it means to be courageous and how to have effective conversations, even with people you don't agree with. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And and this this is is How We Win. Before we started the intro, you were saying that you, at this point in time, having conversations with people you don't agree with isn't particularly high on your list of priorities. (laughs) I mean, it seems like a very black and white time right Mm -hmm. now. And, um, you know, we are seeing a lot of hate and bigotry uh, coming out of the woodwork in very violent ways. And it just feels like a fight. It doesn't feel like a conversation right now. And, and, And we talk about this in our interview with Irshad, but when I first read her book, uh, at least a year ago, probably longer, I was really intrigued by any kind of constructive conversation that will bring our country together and and allow us to be able to listen and um, understand each other a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But you know, when people are being murdered and um, and literally lynched, and we see such a devastating uh, fascist response from the people in charge, Donald Trump and the GOP. It doesn't really make me want to have these challenging conversations and understand where the other side's coming from. It just makes me want to dig my heels in and and keep working and and win and get these people out of power and uh, start having some compassionate leadership again. But we need both, and that's the point of uh, having moral courage and um, and doing this difficult work is um, we have short term victories, but you know we need to build. Um, you know, racism ha- has been around f- for a lot of election cycles, right? And um, there's executive orders that can fix things, and there's executive orders that can screw things up, but. And until we really have these conversations with our our family and our neighbors and uh, and start breaking down the systemic racism in our country, we're never going to have lasting change. So these are the tough conversations that I'm not really uh, like super keen on, but um, right now because I just want to win. But it's as Urshad says in the interview, it's not either or, it's it's both. We need to be doing all of the things. Yeah, I I, I really appreciated that point that, that she made. I'm excited for people to hear it. And I mean, also, we're kind of at a point where people have been at all of this for so long that, you, you know, you do have to kind of take a self-assessment and say, 
I'm not capable of having any more conversations about X, Y, and Z. But we also have to recognize that there are a lot of people out there probably listening to this right now who are in positions where they can't avoid these conversations, whether they're at work or, you know, living with somebody who's ideologically not in alignment figuring out how to have these uh, conversations and be able to persuade people is also really effective for for some folks. So I hope that people um, get a chance to listen and and learn and uh, and think about how they're if they need to communicate around around all of this, how they're doing it. What did you think about our talk with her overall? You and I often talk about living in a bubble out here in California, which is a little bit of a, you know, a privilege. And Mm -hmm. so when you're having a conversation with somebody who is thinking outside of that, it's, I think it's really helpful. And it really, honestly, I thought as I was having conversations with people in different situations over the last week, since we did the interview, I've thought about a lot of her advice and asked a lot more questions than I normally ask because mm. my instinct is always to jump in and be like, oh, let me tell you what's going on and why it's wrong and how we fix it. But <laughs> finding out where other people are coming from is super helpful. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think asking questions in general is always, always a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. But you're right in that there's some things that are happening right now that we just, you know, there's like we're just you know there's no there's no excuse for some of the things that are happening in our country right now there's no writing it off there's no looking on the bright side of things anymore right well and uh not to just give away the entire interview before it starts but she she does make clear also that not everyone is worth your time Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. That it's both to absolutely call out racism. That's racist and say it's racist and not everyone's worth your time engaging. But you won't know who is worth your time until you make the effort to engage. Yeah. So speaking of that, I just want to say that as we're recording it, it's the anniversary of the day that Trump rode that escalator down to the basement of Trump Tower and announced that he was running for president and sort of launched us on this bizarre and wild trajectory that we're on. And I think it's worth pointing out that he started his campaign with a whole lot of divisive, horrifying, untrue speech. And it that that's just what's played out over the last five years, you know, since then. It was a sign of things to come. Yeah. Wow. I didn't realize it was the anniversary. It felt so ridiculous at the time coming down that gold escalator, spitting this racist rhetoric about Mexicans. And it was inconceivable, utterly inconceivable to mm-hmm. me and many others at the time that um, this giant orange ass hat would ever come close to the presidency. But what do I know? I'm just a podcast host. <laughs> well, I, I think we've all learned a lesson is don't, 
don't write don't write this don't stuff count off. your racist chickens until they come out of their bunker yeah and so we've come full circle in in a very short period of time um he has postponed the Tulsa rally that was initially going to be held on Juneteenth mm -hmm. um, after a whole lot of pushback and just, you know, dog whistle, tone deafness, general ignorance. It probably all came into play in the decision to hold a rally in Tulsa on Juneteenth. Not even um, a dog whistle. I mean, everyone heard that. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> backed off like is it backed off of that plan but the fact that it was proposed should disturb us all and be a sign that yeah this ain't over it's totally on purpose there's no doubt first of all S stephen miller uh who's crafting his speech on race relations is uh, <laughs> a student of racist history and knows full well the important dates uh and and what Juneteenth is and the Tulsa massacre and, and all of that. It, uh, it's they know exactly what they're doing. Um, I mean, the, obviously, the two choices are they're either completely ignorant and and therefore unqualified, um, or they're uh, malicious. And it's definitely the latter. Actually, both can be the case at the same time in this case. But, yeah, I think so. Um, would you talk about Juneteenth and uh, for people who don't know what that is, um, talk a little bit about it? Yes, I'm happy to talk about one of my favorite holidays, Juneteenth. So um, <laughs> Juneteenth is June 19th, and it's uh, a celebration or a commemoration of um, June 19th, 1865, which is when the last slaves in America were notified uh, in Texas that they were free. And it's so significant because this is two and a half years after they were actually freed, after the Emancipation Proclamation had been signed and enacted, word didn't reach Texas for another two and a half years. So um, these slaves had to continue to, to work and, and, and be in enslavement for an, an additional two and a half years unnecessarily. Mm -hmm. So I, I remember being very disturbed when I was younger by July 4th. Right. And knowing, and I remember I stopped celebrating July 4th for a very long time. I think it was actually, I was like huh. late teens, early twenties after I had read Roots and just been so devastated by the story of, of Alex Haley's family, their story as enslaved people in mm -hmm. America and reflecting on my own personal history. And so for a long time, I just couldn't understand how people could celebrate the 4th of July when so many people in this country weren't free. And so I shifted to celebrating Juneteenth instead um, because that was, and this is a, like obviously still a lot of work to do after Juneteenth, but that was the day that, <laughs> um, that our country was truly free. So I encourage everybody to celebrate Juneteenth. Great. Thanks for that overview. Um, our call to action, since it's related to Juneteenth, and we're, uh, as always, we will post this link onto our podcast page, swingleft.org slash podcast, but it's 619, all spelled out, dot com, 619.com, and it's a weekend of rallies and events surrounding Juneteenth all over the country that you can join in, join up with. Yeah, I think... Um 
celebration is always important, but at this point in time, we need action to go along with that. So I'm excited that this weekend, this coming weekend is going to be a weekend of action around Juneteenth. Yes. Before we move on to the interview, um, we do have a very nice reason for hope in the middle of all of this. Mm. And we had a historic SCOTUS Supreme Court decision that makes being gay or being transgender a civil right. It was a shocking decision for a conservative court. Of course, our old friend Kavanaugh was one of the dissenters on that. Mm. Continuing to show who he is. Not to bring us down, though, it, it was a, <laughs> a huge a huge victory and something to be celebrated and, and definitely a reason for hope to, you know, because it goes against what the Trump administration has been pushing. And also on the anniversary of the Pulse shooting, uh, Trump rolled back protections for transgender Americans' health care coverage. Just another hateful act uh, by a hateful administration. And Following that up with the Supreme Court decision was was really some much needed good news. Yeah, this was a hugely important decision that was kind of a no brain. Like to me, I guess that's why I'm not on the Supreme Court. It's a no brainer. Like, okay, great. Now you can't get fired for being gay, lesbian, or transgender. Oh, okay. Well, that seems pretty basic, but I'm right. glad it's the law of the land now. And what's so important about this is it's an extension of the civil rights movement. This is what happens when we secure rights for one group. We can continue to fight for rights, for more civil rights and equality mm. for all groups. And so this is part of this long road that we've all been on, the culmination of so much work that started way, like decades and decades ago. And um continued with with marriage equality and now today and who knows what groups will be protected in the future because of this and you know the same sort of sentiment is true for this um justice in policing act that democrats are working on getting through the house and the senate now mm -hmm. um it has enough votes to pass in the house already um it hasn't gone up for a vote yet but it has enough support and that's because so many people out there helped flip the house two years ago. So just always remember that this work feels so immediate, but it also has such long, long-term impacts. We don't know what we're doing today that's going to save lives and make people, people much better off down the road. So keep it up, everybody. Yeah, great points. Knocking it out of the park, Mariah. That that's just amazing. There's so many activists who have who have gone before us, who mm -hmm. started out just stepping out of their comfort zone, mm -hmm. um, showing up maybe to their first rally, going to a registration drive or something like that for the first time, and they're they're now the um, the heroes of the civil rights movement and on through the decades who have been paving the way, and and now we are writing the history. We're literally writing the history of this time in our lives. And um, boy, 
you don't need constant reminders of how important it is to win back the Senate. Trump is pulling a lot of attention right now because um, he is so hateful. But this SCOTUS decision, the importance of the judges that are going to be nominated mm-hmm. to the Senate in the next term, and this great legislation that's coming through the House that Mitch McConnell certainly is going to block. Uh, we, you know, It just shows once again how important it is that we keep our head down and do this, mm-hmm. this pivotal work for the most important election of our lives. That's right. Having said all that, let's take a listen to this incredible conversation that we had with Irshad Manji. Irshad Manji is the founder of Moral Courage College, which teaches people worldwide how to do the right thing in the face of fear. She is also the best-selling author of Don't Label Me, a guide to healing the divides that are ripping apart America and many more countries. Ms. Manji, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Please call me Irshad. Okay, I will. Good. Um, first of all, how are you doing during – you're in Brooklyn. How are you doing during this time? Um, I'm generally doing well. Um, you know, we're, we've all been cooped up, uh, this being the epicenter of, uh, of the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. But it is amazing just um, how much I've learned not to take my very basic freedoms for granted, um, such as the freedom to, you know, speak to people in person, to congregate, to give people hugs, um, and to be grateful for the health, uh, the ability to breathe every single day. That's no small thing, as we've learned and uh, ironically have learned yet again through George Floyd's uh, experience. But I don't mind uh, confessing to your audience, Stephen Mariah, that uh, my family did lose a very close member to COVID-19. That has been extremely hard. He was relatively young, very healthy, and and just an angel you know, you couldn't leave his presence without feeling more joy than when you walked into uh, his mm. presence. And uh, so uh, this, too, has, you know, been a time of learning um, the kind of courage that it takes to simply listen and not prioritize your comfort over somebody else's pain. Mm. I say that because my instinct was to try to cheer my mother up. Uh, but that is not what heals. What heals, first and foremost, is being present amid somebody else's anguish. And uh, I think, again, in many ways, more and more Americans are learning that today at all levels. Well, we're so sorry for your loss, but thank you for telling us a little bit about your relative. I think particularly in times where we can't get together the way that we want to, um, I I always appreciate hearing what people remember and and loved about the ones that they lost. So thank you for taking a minute to do that. Yeah, I appreciate you guys asking. Um, we want to make sure that that we don't label you while while we talk. We've <laughs> are, we, we've learned already. Um, so for people who aren't familiar with you and your work, could you describe yourself and your story, please? Wow. Well, where to begin? Um, You know, uh, in my book, Don't Label Me, which really is a a primer on um, how to do diversity without unnecessarily inflaming the culture wars, um, I suggest that all of us do have one thing in common. And that's not just that we're human. It is that we are plurals. Uh, 
We are all multifaceted, each and every one of us, so that no one label or even combination of labels can accurately capture all that we are. And that, I think, will be important as we continue our conversation, um, important to keep in mind. Uh, but, you know, um, those who do know of my work or, or my um, somewhat exotic name might be remembering it from a previous episode uh, of my life in which uh, I wrote a book called The Trouble with Islam Today, A Muslim's Call for Reform in Her Faith. And so I really started, you know, my, my public activism as a Muslim, self-identified, who advocates for an Islam of liberty and love and uses, you know, the traditional sources to argue that um, there is an interpretation here that leads to to peace, but that more uh, people who describe themselves as moderate Muslims need to be not just speaking up against violence, but frankly, also practicing the religion in a way that uh, the raw materials of the faith allow for the 21st century. And that means, for example, not having to segregate mosques between women and men. Um, I bring up all of this because it is during, frankly, an almost 15-year global book tour <laughs> for that particular <laughs> book that wow. I learned how to engage my detractors, uh, skeptics, both Islam bashers and Islam supremacists. And I took many of those lessons and have applied them to this new, relatively new chapter in my life in which um, I, among other voices, am seeking to heal the polarization uh, that runs so deeply uh, in our country. And um, my basic point is that we need to be engaging our other rather than labeling them uh, mm -hmm. merely as insidious, ignorant, evil, stupid. Some may be any one of those things and potentially all of those things, but we don't know who's who and what their values are and where they're coming from until we first take the time to engage, which then allows trust to be built so that they in turn will have low enough defenses to then hear us out. It sounds idealistic. It sounds very Pollyannish. But in fact, social science research backs this up. And, you know, you won't be surprised to hear. I've got plenty of stories to share about how it works. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And a lot in the book, too. I, I, I found Don't Label Me at a bookstore. We were talking a little bit about this before we started recording last year, and I was really excited by it. I was so compelled at, at you know, real and challenging solutions to bring our divided country together. And I, you know label myself as someone who champions diversity. And, you know, it's very important to me to fight for that. Um, but <laughs> to be very honest, at this time, especially the last few weeks of such unrest, I really feel less of a desire to connect with people than <laughs> that I disagree with yeah. and more of a desire to just win. Just mm -hmm. I'm just being honest. I'm glad you um, are. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I guess uh, it's that's the whole I'm, I'm your moral right? courage. That's that's the struggle. Yeah. Um, so how, how do we fight hate, fight mm -hmm. this hate that we're experiencing in our country without further dividing us? So let's just get one fallacy out of the way. 
Okay. Let's get out of the either or mindset. It doesn't have to be a choice between marching and protesting or quietly engaging. We can do both. And in fact, if we are going to take diversity seriously, then we also have to recognize that justice requires a diversity of approaches, uh, not the least of which is voting. But the point being that it's so easy, given the way our brains work as human beings, to lapse immediately into the us against them or uh, the zero-sum mindset. So that, you know, Irshad Manji says that um, we shouldn't be demanding equality. Instead, we should be comforting our adversaries. That is not what I am saying at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and again, let's be clear that we need several strategies at once. What I am saying is that as we march and protest, let's also remember that um, visuals like this will reach people and be understood by people who are already inclined to see the need for mm-hmm. justice and see the problem as we, you know, as we would express it. But it doesn't reach those who don't yet get it, who are not yet on board. Mm -hmm. And um, frankly, we need at least some of the holdouts in order to win. Uh, And that's where engaging with people who don't yet get it is so important. Now, I recognize that there's only so much time in any day and that some of us, more than others, I include myself in this, need our beauty sleep. Okay, so, (laughs) you know, we're not going to be able to engage with everybody. What I try to suggest to folks is if this is an issue, for example, if anti-racism is an issue that you are absolutely passionate about, then presumably you're passionate enough to want to move the needle on this with at least one person who isn't yet in our camp. So take the time. Over days, weeks, months even, just one hour a week to ask the question. This is a very important question, kind of Kennedy-esque, actually. Ask not what I can do to change my other's mind. Ask what it is about my other that I am missing. Really listen to where they're coming from. What experiences have they had in life? Why? Uh, do they believe what they believe? If you are in their shoes, is it possible, having had their experiences, that you might think the same way? Ask plenty of questions based on what you've heard, not what your preconceived notion of what they're saying is. And let them feel heard so that their emotional defenses will come down enough over the course perhaps of weeks so that uh, your uh, point of view finally also has a shot at being heard by them. That may sound tedious, but in fact, if you limit it to just one person, you will find that what this person gives you at the end of the day, no matter what happens as a result of those conversations, they're giving you the gift of helping you become a better communicator for what you believe in. And that is something that matters a lot in a world of noise. So does, do you think that that means um, 
that some of us will avoid calling out what we would perceive to be harmful behaviors or actions and just using like, you, you know, using as an example, a racist Facebook post, you know, instead right. of calling that out, mm-hmm. we would come at that same person from a, from a different approach or right. would, would it be a combination of both or? Ah, thank you, Mariah. Once again, the word instead kind of throws us off track, right? And again, this is a very human tendency. I do it too, and I have to catch myself doing it. It doesn't have to be one or the other. Either I call that racist Facebook post out, or I say, uh, you know, I, I, I become very polite and, and I engage. No, you can do both. You can say, hey, you know what? That's racist. And, not but, and, mm. I want to understand why you think it's okay to say that. What is it about your life and about your experiences that make you believe that this is okay? Help me to understand. Notice that you are stating your position. You are crystal clear about where you stand. But you're not dismissing that person to say that, uh, therefore, I'm just going to walk away. Again. You don't have to change their mind, but the more you learn about why somebody is coming from a particular place that really disgusts you, or for that matter, even just makes you uncomfortable, troubles you, Mm -hmm. the more you're going to be able to clarify how to communicate your message in a way that allows them to both feel heard and over time, hear you. Now, I want to be, I just, I need to emphasize one more time. Not everybody is worth your time. Hmm. I completely get it. But here's the thing. You won't know who's who until you engage. And you have the right to walk away. Absolutely. But to walk away too soon, maybe to leave social change on the table. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's that's powerful. I mean, uh, right now there's so many calls uh, from organizers and and everyone to have these conversations with people too. Yeah, right now, hard right? conversations, exactly. And 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 folks, can I just say one other thing about this while I have it on my aging brain? Um, <laughs> yeah, seriously, these days, um, you know, uh, when Elizabeth Warren announced her endorsement of Joe Biden. I want to remind our listeners exactly what she said. She said, and I I have the quote right in front of me. She said, when you disagree, he'll listen. Not just listen, but really hear you and treat you with respect, no matter where you're coming from. And he has shown throughout this campaign that when you come up with new facts or a good argument, he's not too afraid or too proud to be persuaded. Now, I think we know Elizabeth Warren's persona enough to know that she doesn't say these sorts of things lightly. She is a fighter through and through. So I'm taking her at her word that the fact that Biden has been willing to listen to policies that he himself would not have you know, adopted on his own was part and parcel of the reason that she could, with integrity, announce her endorsement of him. Uh, And I must say that in part, some polling suggests that this is the reason Bernie didn't get further than he did. 
largely, and again, not exclusively, there are multiple factors here, but one of those factors is that uh, many people who would have had him as their second choice worried about how they would be treated by anybody who wasn't a diehard Bernie fan. Hmm. Um, and they expressed that concern, you know, on various social media platforms and said, this is the reason I can't join a campaign that uh, allows uh, for this kind of treatment of people with, you know, with uh, slightly different views. Well, we're famous as Democrats for eating our own, no doubt. You know, I <laughs> so. think movement, movements generally, regardless, left, right, movements generally are famous for eating our own. Um, <laughs> so, so I think it's worth, you know, asking in a democracy that is already in great trouble, you know, how is it that we as individuals, how is it that we as citizens can deepen the meaning of democracy through our own contributions. And this is certainly one of the ways to do it. Yeah. Um, that's really powerful. Thank you so much for uh, that perspective. Um, I want to talk about one spot in your book. And you talked about your 15-year book tour. <laughs> um, and uh, you've certainly been through a lot as an activist. And Right now, people are going through a lot. Their mm-hmm. activists and volunteers are are, are really exhausted. Uh, you talk about a time, I believe it was after nine eleven, when you were doing tons of TV shows and engagements around that, and your health was suffering, and you passed out in your makeup chair before yeah. an interview on NBC. That's right. What did you learn from that experience, and what advice do you have for volunteers and activists? I mean, twenty yeah. twenty has just been horrible. I mean, it's just been brutal. brutal. Yeah. um, Steve uh, and Mariah, what I learned uh, before and above everything else, this will sound weird, but bear with me. I learned the value of humility. And here's what I mean. You know, as somebody who was consistently called upon by media to be that go-to Muslim chick, Mm-hmm. on um, Islam, and particularly uh, immediately after, you know, terrorist acts. I, I, there was one point in 2011, actually, Osama bin Laden had just been killed. Uh, the Arab uprisings just a couple of months before that had launched, and I was practically living in a TV studio, uh, mostly at MSNBC and sometimes at CNN. And uh, I remember thinking to myself that I really need a break. I am exhausted. I am burnt out. I'm not keeping up with the other responsibilities that I have. I was a professor at NYU at the time. But here's what kicked in. My ego kicked in. And it said, but Irshad, if you're not available to speak about these issues, then who's going to? Mm -hmm. If you're not the voice of Muslim reform and people who are counting on you to be their voice no longer see you, then aren't you letting them down? And it was on the third day of the book tour for my next book, not the one that put me on the road for 15 years, but the (laughs) following book. It was on the third day. I woke up. I got out of bed. 
getting ready for my most important interview of my life, which was supposed to be the Today Show. And I passed out. I fainted on the floor in my apartment in New York. I got up, came to, got up and, and told my publicist, book publicist, I, I can't do this. She said, hey, that's okay. I get it. No problem. Take care of yourself. I want to come back to the take care of yourself bit in just a moment. Mm -hmm. Then I felt so guilty that I was letting her down and my publisher down and you know, the, the audience that had paid money to see me at a, at a big event that same night that I, you know, trooped to 30 Rockefeller and uh, got into the makeup chair. And what I heard during the makeup chair was all kinds of perky breakfast show talk mm -hmm. that reminded <laughs> me, you know, that all I am really for at least for, you know, the, the, the commercial folks, right? All I am is filler. You know, they could swap me in with any other guest about any other topic. They're really here to sell commercials. And I'm taking this very seriously. Right. And I started sweating. And I could feel myself slumping into my chair. And the next thing I knew, I came to and I had a makeup artist in my face saying, do you know where you are? Do you know who you are? And I thought, my God, there's my identity crisis right up close and personal, <laughs> you know? And, and the third question was, can you still go on? Can you, right, <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Well, by then, the you know, they had already called the paramedics and the gurney had had time to, uh, you know, uh, to, to get up to the fourth floor of Rockefeller Square and, 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 you know, enter the makeup room. And so I knew that I was not going to go on. But here's the right. point. What my publicist in her wisdom told me, she said, take care of yourself. And that's exactly what I needed to learn is that we all believe in our causes to the point where two things happen. One, we think we are indispensable. Mm -hmm. We're not. And I know that that's a shocking thing to say to an <laughs> activist crowd, but here's the thing. We are indispensable to the people who love us and who want us around. And often we consume ourselves with the cause to the point where we're not even in the lives of the people who love us mm -hmm. and care about us the most. Instead, we've given over our lives to the cause. But what we fail to realize is that without that self-care, we're not going to be long for this world anyway. So you have to take a step back. You have to say when you're exhausted, I'm sorry, I'm exhausted. I need a few hours, a few days to just breathe, rejuvenate, refill that vessel and get back to it again. And so let us have the humility to recognize that the world will keep spinning with or without us, but it will have the gift of our presence longer if we give some time to ourselves. That's the humility I'm talking about. And that is why, you know, self-care actually is a gift to the cause more than it is a detriment. Mm -hmm. Well, I am taking um, such thorough notes on this conversation for myself personally, <laughs> but yeah. I also want to know more about uh, Moral Courage College. Um, mm -hmm. So can you tell us about that and how people can participate? 
Sure. Um, so years ago, I mentioned I, I taught at NYU. When NYU came calling, uh, asking if I would join them for a visiting semester as a, uh, a, as a scholar, I said to them, I would love to on one condition. I'm not here to teach Islam. I'm here to teach a leadership tradition that I have come to understand over the years. And that is moral college. Uh, Sorry, excuse me, moral courage. Um, And it is what Robert F. Kennedy defined as a form of leadership that is more rare than bravery in battle or even great intelligence. Because he said it is the, you know, one criteria that is needed to change the world that yields most painfully to change. Those were his, his words. And very simply, moral courage means doing the right thing in the face of your fear. What social science research tells us is that human beings fear one thing more than any other, and that is being judged, which is why as social beings, we crave belonging. And so we will gravitate to anything that allows us to feel that we are part of a bigger tribe. We, we can do something that is bigger than ourselves. And as we know, uh, as participants in movements, that is important and it's necessary. But it also means that we are gratified, our egos are gratified from being part of these movements. So gratified that when there is injustice that bubbles up within these movements, we often can't bring ourselves to speak truth to power to those injustices as well, because then we fear we're going to be outcast. We're no longer going to belong. Who are we? Who am I if not I am not a part of this group? And that is when too often we stay silent, right? So let me bring it back to you know what uh, happens, let's say, in um, movements to combat racism. I have been part of these movements for a very, very long time. And I have learned that sometimes, and I write about this and don't label me, leaders, self-appointed, become so convinced that they are speaking the truth, which is their truth, that people feel intimidated to say anything that may uh, contradict what, you know, the organic leaders are saying in our midst. But, But often that silence leads to people being treated badly in the name of justice. And so we have to recognize that the way we sell the justice to people who are not yet on board is by role modeling uh, the behavior of justice, by treating other people with grace, by listening when, uh, when they are trying to get us to hear something. And that includes people who disagree with us. Again, I am not saying Listening means having to agree with, but it does mean that if we want to be heard, uh, human psychology, there is one critical and non-negotiable law of human psychology, and it is this. If you want to be heard, you must first be willing to hear. And that is when we have the integrity, we have the credibility to agitate for justice in a way that more people can buy. So all to say, moral courage, do the right thing in the face of your fear. And there are many scenarios in which we fail to do the right thing because we fear no longer belonging. This is just one that I've described and it's one that is, you know, particularly relevant. But for people who do want to learn those skills and they are teachable, 
they are more than teachable. You have to have the intrinsic motivation to want to learn them, to want to practice them. But if you have that intrinsic motivation, they can be learned. And I'm happy to say I'm literally just putting the finishing touches on an online course that will uh, uh, teach particularly educators how to teach moral courage to a new generation. Mm-hmm. Can I just say one other thing about this? Yeah, of course. Um, you know, among the reasons I'm so passionate about uh, teaching moral courage is that I look at the next generation of activists who have no shortage of problems to help solve. We're living at a time when global challenges have now become, in some cases, existential ones. Uh, Mm. We're talking about the climate crisis, mass migration, pandemics, the rise of populism. And the generation of teenagers in particular are going to have to contribute to solutions that are enduring. This is really key to understand. Solutions that are imposed on anybody who has not yet bought in, those solutions will not be sustainable because they will sow the seeds of backlash. We saw that with Trump coming in and writing all these executive orders and ripping apart all the stuff that Obama accomplished. That's exactly right. And regardless of what side does it, If any side imposes so-called solutions on another side that has yet to buy in, all they're doing is planting blowback, which means that um, the needle uh, does not move. The only thing that moves is the hamster wheel of dogma, and it moves around and round with cynicism deepening and the noise amplifying. This is exactly why a new generation has to learn how to communicate across disagreement. And that is what the work of moral courage is focused on. It is not focused on getting people to compromise, not at all. If you firmly believe that your truth is one that deserves to be fought for, that's wonderful. But ask yourself, how am I going to get some of the holdouts on side as well? The work of moral courage is to teach people how to stand their ground while seeking common ground. And the way you seek common ground is through the how of activism. Not the what, but how you are an activist, how you engage, and whether you engage your other is the common ground that can be established even as you stand your ground. Well, uh, you have a great website that we're going to link to, and uh, I'm excited for your online course. When when can we expect that? Soonish? Uh, ish would be the right uh, <laughs> <laughs> emphasis there. Yeah, I've actually right. been working on this for the last couple of years, and uh, weirdly, the <laughs> pandemic finally gave me the time to um, you know to to finish uh, the production of it. So probably by go. the fall. But again, um, you know, you can certainly come to moralcourage.com and learn more. And I want to say, because I've been talking a lot in sweeping, you know, sort of generalizations, here's what we can do. But let me give you a quick example of, of, you know, how the moral courage approach uh, has worked. And very recently, I might add, we all remember, you know, the students from Marjorie Stoneman High School, right, in Florida on Valentine's Day, sadly, 2018. uh, There was a, you know, a a mass shooting at uh, at the school. Cast your mind back 
to the very first televised forum that um, you know the the students participated in. This was on CNN, and something they did struck me. A number of them in this forum thanked their Republican senator Marco Rubio for appearing, despite knowing that he would be bombarded with hostility and booze and thumbs down. Now, this diplomacy, thanking him before they got into their, you know, let me nail you to the wall question, thanking him for his courage in being there, made these students impossible to vilify. Uh, of course, the usual conspiracy theorists, uh, you know, right. ginned up rumors that these were actors for hire and some gun lobbyists poo-pooed them as children. But by publicly reaching out to the other side before digging in, these students elevated the moral authority of their protests, and they wound up mobilizing many more people to advocate for gun control than they would have had they been strictly confrontational. So I'm talking about eff efficacy here, folks. I'm, st right. I'm talking about how we win. And hey, so uh, are we. Exactly right. Exactly <laughs> right. So th that is one just very recent example of how, you know, moral courage uh, can be strategic uh, and not just virtuous. Before we let you go, we do have to ask you, uh, what gives you the most hope for our future? Mm. So um, I, I'm going to recite a short poem to you. This is a poem that actually I discovered when I realized that Bruce Lee, of all people, the, the martial arts master, um, also taught his students to be like water, to be nimble rather than rigid. And in being like water, to wash over and uh, sort of glide around and seep through uh, rather than just crashing into the opposition. Mm -hmm. um, and he recited this poem uh, to his students and, and it's, it was written by uh, a poet, the Poet Laureate of Oregon, actually, back in the 1920s, a guy by the name of Edwin Markham. And the poem is called Outwitted. And it goes like this. He drew a circle that shut me out. Heretic, rebel, a thing to flout. But love and I had the wit to win. We drew a circle that took him in. Mm. Mm -hmm. So good. And this yeah. really speaks to the border-busting, bridge-building power of uh, engaging one's detractors. That's incredible. And it's, it, you know, I'm struck by, it, it's, it's talking about using the same tools That's right. to either push people away uh, and block them or, or bring, like, I love the idea of bringing some, somebody in. And you could argue actually, Mariah, in another way that these are different tools, you know, yes, we're, we're using obviously human psychology. That's the tool I think you're referring to, to either mm -hmm. shut others out or mm -hmm. to bring them in. Um, but it's funny you should mention tools because I've been thinking over the last many days, you know, the famous quote from the famed social justice activist, Audre Lorde, who really, you know, rose to her influence in, in the 60s and 70s. Um, and she's the one who pointed out uh, the master's tools, which are punitive, mm -hmm. will never dismantle the master's house. Right. Hmm. 
So this is an opportunity to use a different set of tools and really tap into how human psychology works. Beautiful, beautiful notes to end on. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. And uh, however we do it, let's win in November. Let's first make sure we have an election and then let's win it. Oh, we have our work cut out for us. Yes, we, we do. do. Yes, we, we do. do. That's what gets us out of bed every morning. That's right. We had such a beautiful, poetic, you know, denouement to our conversation, and and now you've just freaked me out. So, uh... <laughs> don't worry, don't worry. I, oh, can I just listen? In fact, I shouldn't say don't worry. Of course, we should worry. But but think about this. But think about this, guys. I I think you tell me if you're in agreement on this. And if you're not, I'd really love to, you know, hear your point of view. But I think one of the reasons, if not the key reason that so many, so many military men have been speaking out about Trump's, um, you know, divisive tactics over the last many days is that they see that it is a real and present danger that he would resort to the tactic of declaring martial law and calling off the election in November. And what they're signaling to their rank and file, as much as to him is, not on our watch. We will not let you do this. We will yeah. not let it happen. I so, think that's exactly right. And when you when you hear the language that they use, as you said, they're, they're, they're saying the military is there to serve the Constitution. Exactly. Not the president. Exactly. You know? um, so, and they're saying that, as you said, to their rank and file. Yeah, it's it's scary, and it's you know I think that Trump's actions in in many ways is uh, testing the waters for that, yeah. and the yeah. pushback is is a result of that. Absolutely, and this is why. Again, I'll, I'll sort of end it with you know some some more clarity. There are some people whom you just can't b- bring in because they don't want to be brought in. You know, their mo is fight, fight, fight. They are in it just to prolong the fight. And that's Trump. As he has often reminded us, he counterpunches 10 times harder. And frankly, he doesn't even need a punch to counterpunch. He just punches 10 times harder than anybody else is willing to, right? So I'm not saying that engagement can change him. But what I am saying is, let us not conflate all of Trump's supporters with Trump himself. Some of them love his tactics Mm -hmm. and love to brawl, but others, not so much. And we know this because he is steadily losing support. Yeah. Let us not alienate those swing voters by becoming so confrontational, so us against them, that their defenses kick in and make them believe that they can never be part of us. Hmm. Yeah. Well, they definitely got a lot of mileage out of uh, uh, Clinton's deplorable comment. Yes, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Nobody is here. Uh, very few people. I shouldn't say nobody. Very few people are, quote, irredeemable. And, and let's remember that those of us who think that, you know, we have have a monopoly on truth and we must redeem others, guess what? Some of them are thinking the same about us, you know? So right. a, little, a little humility, just a little, can go a long way to victory. 
Well, thank you. We're, we'll we'll use it. We'll we'll try to muster all the humility that we can <laughs> just, muster. Just, just a little, Steve. You don't have to muster all the humility that you can muster. Thank but, but God, because I, okay. I love the sound of my own voice. So I'm, <laughs> that's a relief. <laughs> Seems your listeners love the sound of both your voices. So I'm 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 thrilled that and grateful that you um, you allowed me to to share your platform with them. Thank you for joining us today, and thank you for taking action. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved. We want to hear from you. Tweet to us at BluesBoySteve and at Mariah underscore Craven. Or email us at podcast at swingleft.org. Thank you to our friends at Dimcast. And if you haven't yet, please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. Share us on social media and use the hashtag HowWeWin2020. Check out our page at swingleft.org slash podcast where you'll find show notes, links, and ways to volunteer. We appreciate you being here with us. We're going to have a bonus Father's Day episode on Sunday, which will be an interview with my dad, who was former counsel to President Johnson. And then we'll be back with our regular show next Wednesday. Everybody should definitely come to Baltimore. We have a way of speaking to each other through food. It's really renewed for me, my love of what I do. It's going to take something far stronger than a pandemic to defeat us. All of these businesses are taking precautions to make sure that everyone is safe. We're ready. See what we've got going on. Plan your visit at Baltimore.org.